Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What happens when someone you love is diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia? There are so many changes that happen in everyone's lives, especially for the person who no longer has their memories. But daily interaction with loved ones can be the key to preserving what's left. And although it may not seem like someone with dementia is benefiting from being with their family, there are so many signs that it can literally be a lifesaver. Now, we have a very important show today. We're all getting older, and as we age, all of us have an increased risk for memory loss. For those who are already experiencing this, some of the coping skills we talk about today can provide a lifeline for everyone involved. Now, first, we're going to talk to author Dr. Ed Shaw. He's on the phone. He has helped write Keeping Love Alive as Memories Fade, The Five Love Languages and the Alzheimer's Journey. He's calling in today from about five hours later on the East Coast. Dr. Shaw, thanks for staying up and joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me, what was your inspiration in really looking at these concepts of what we can do to keep people with Alzheimer's understanding that they're still someone we love and care about and cherish? Well, it was a a very personal thing for me uh, because my wife, Rebecca, who passed away just a couple of months ago, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease at the age of 53. And at that point, we had been married for almost 35 years. We had three daughters, and it was more important to me than anything else to keep the love alive in our relationship. So that eventually sparked a career change for me, a shift from being a cancer doctor to uh, more working with the dementia population medically and then getting a a counseling degree uh, as a mental health practitioner to work with uh, care partners, husbands like myself, wives, uh, adult children, who are on the Alzheimer's journey with a loved one and just really wanted to to get the message out with the book that you can keep love alive even as memory fades with Alzheimer's disease. Now, you made a very important distinction that I'm curious about. Often we say caregivers and you say care partners. Why is that? Well, we make the distinction because um, Alzheimer's disease is, is really a process. It's not an event. So, For most people who are diagnosed with the disease, they may uh, typically live 10 years with the disease. And early on, as was the case with my wife, her only symptom was more memory loss than you'd expect for somebody uh, her age. And so the idea of having somebody take care of you when you only have minor symptoms early on can be even offensive uh, to some people who have a diagnosis of early Alzheimer's. So we use the term care partner because it's, it truly is a partnership. There's give and take. It isn't until really very late in the disease when the person actually needs caregiving to meet some of their basic needs. So it really is important for us to respectfully describe the role of family members as truthfully partners, as you mentioned in this journey. Now, a lot of times people think, well, okay, so my loved one with Alzheimer's doesn't recognize me, doesn't know who I am, so I don't have to go visit them if they're in a care home or spend time with them, or maybe they're not getting that interaction that they expect, and so they kind of step away from the situation. And yet, in fact, part of your book explains that that's actually the worst thing you could do. You want to step towards the situation and continue to find 
things that really that person enjoys and or appreciates, which may not be something they can physically show. Absolutely, Kathy. I think this is really one of the core messages of the book, that a person who has Alzheimer's disease loses the ability to express love to their own loved ones. But for most people who have the disease, they never lose the ability to receive love. And so we talk about, uh, in the second chapter of the book, a, a word called hesed, which is a sacrificial or an intentional love, a love that is really out of service to the other person. And this is what happens as the disease progresses. The person may not be able to respond to the emotion of their spouse or their adult children or even their friends and coworkers, but they very much can feel the love that's expressed to them. And so uh, this issue that you mentioned, you know, people sort of gravitating away from the person as the disease progresses, this is really exactly opposite of what that person needs to maintain attached or connected to have those love bonds with the people that are important in their life. Well, and you mentioned one of the key aspects is also spending time with them, even if it's just to discuss where what they remember and or their recollections of their life, but really just not stepping away and not stopping by and maybe bringing some kind of uh, a gift that, that was nice to do, but really just spending the time interacting. Yes, absolutely. We... We talk about uh, the five love languages in the book, which is really a toolkit that uh, care partners and uh, other family members can use to basically have a loving relationship uh, with um, you know, their parent or their spouse. And the five love languages include things like you just mentioned, quality time, just really being with that person, even if you don't have a lot of uh, words that may be exchanged with you. But you can give words of affirmation to that person. You can uh, build them up and tell them that you love them. Uh, you can never tell anybody uh, too many times that, that you love them. Uh, you can uh, bring the person a gift. For somebody who has very advanced dementia, it may just be something as simple as a cookie or a piece of chocolate, um, but something that uh, is tangible for them that they really may enjoy, that may help them feel loved. And then physical touch is another of the love languages where you can sit and hold hands with that person or you know, just uh, put an affirming hand on their shoulder. You know, these are all tools in that love language toolkit that you can use to convey to that person that, yes, I still love you and you are still worth loving. Now, we talk a lot about the person who has lost their memory and how it's devastating for them. But it's also devastating for all the people in their circle, all of their care partners and their loved ones. What are some of the things that people can do to support those other family members who are also so deeply affected? Uh, thanks for, for asking that question. Um, I think uh, one has to be really intentional, particularly with that primary care partner. So maybe um, the husband or the wife, um, it Maybe if, if uh, the parent is a, a widow or a widower, it, it may be an adult child who's the primary care partner. But uh, we use this metaphor in the book of the emotional love tank that um, it, it takes a lot of uh, physical, emotional, and spiritual energy to care for somebody who has Alzheimer's disease. And the care partner has to be very intentional, not only about caring for themselves, 
but really having a team of people who are going to care for them. We sort of uh, say jokingly that um, Alzheimer's caregiving is a team sport because it really requires sort of the, you know, the notion of a village to take care of somebody who has the disease and their care partner. So if you, if you know somebody who is the care partner for someone who is affected, you can not only offer to visit the person who may have the, the Alzheimer's, but you can also offer maybe to help do some things for their care partner. You know, hey, I'm going to make you meals once a week, or hey, I'm going to run your errands, pick up your dry cleaning, that all of us can have a role, even if it's not directly with the person affected, but with their care partner, we can all do something. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think, uh, you know, often people will say, well, you know, just call me if you need me. But in the case of somebody, particularly if they're really in the middle or later stages of the disease where they're very, very involved, the average caregiver provides care 30 or 40 hours a week. And so, it's like you know, a there really isn't job. time for them to pick up the phone and call you and say, you know, I need this or I need that. You know, just volunteer to come and sit with their loved one for an hour, even once a month would be something they could count on, or just go mow the lawn or, you know, bring the meal. You know, just doing these things can be so incredibly helpful and relieve their burden of, of caring for their loved one. Now, if somebody goes through the diagnosis and progresses to a point where they need to be placed in a facility, what are some of the considerations that go into putting someone in long-term care? Well, this is a, a very common issue that we, we deal with in the, the counseling setting. And I, I think there's a notion that's sort of out in, uh, generally out there that if you place a loved one in a facility that you're not really loving them well. And uh, in the fifth chapter of the book, towards the end, we talk about some of the factors that go into the decision about whether you keep somebody at home and care for them at home or whether you place them in a facility. And there are a number of different factors that go into that decision. It may just be um, you know, if somebody, uh, particularly if there's an earlier onset Alzheimer's disease diagnosis, it may be that the, the spouse has to work full time and uh, there just isn't the possibility that they can be home and to care for that person 30 or 40 hours a week. So that may, may push someone towards a facility placement the kinds of issues that can occur later in the disease where you know you're caring for basic needs like feeding, toileting, showering, you know, transferring. Uh, not all of us are really equipped to to do those sorts of things with our loved ones and then they may uh, our loved ones may want their dignity preserved. You know, there's very late into the disease a, a really strong sense that you know, a parent may not want one of their adult children to say wipe their behind uh, if they're having continence issues because it's very much a dignity issue for them. And then maybe one of the biggest factors, Kathy, is just money. Um, uh, it is very expensive to have 24-7 care for somebody at home. You know, it can be, at least in, in our part of the, the country, between ten, fifteen, even $20,000 a month for 24/7 care. So, whereas a facility may be more in the range of say six to ten thousand dollars a month. So there are different factors. You really have to sort of um, fine tune them to each family and understand both the person with dementia's needs and the the family's abilities and desires, and then come up with a decision that's really best for anybody. 
Well, and I think also as a counselor, I'm sure that you go through that decision-making process with someone and also help them not to feel guilty. I think a lot of times we see multi-generational families and there's this sense that if you don't give up your life and stop everything to take care of your loved one if they're a parent, that you should feel guilty. And that, I think, is a huge burden that is unnecessary on the care partners, but also something that everybody can help with, even if it's just like you mentioned, I'm going to be there every Tuesday afternoon for two hours and you can go run errands and I'm going to help with grandpa or grandma or whoever it might be just to make sure that you alleviate some of the guilt, because I think that's another issue that we don't hear often enough is just ways that the person who is trying to provide the care cannot feel bad if they can't be there 24-7. Yes. You know, um, I appreciate you saying that because just last week I sat with a a man who had placed his wife a year ago, and he was tremendously guilt-ridden about uh, placing her into a memory care unit into a facility near his home. And uh, he was back, and it just happened to be a year after the placement. And I, I said to him, well, just reflect back on you know, what that decision, uh, now that you've got sort of a year behind you, has meant. And he looked at me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he says, you know, Dr. Shaw, that decision freed me up to be my wife's husband again rather than being her caregiver. And it was really wonderful. He goes, he spends a couple hours a day with her, and they sing and they dance together. She takes a nap on his shoulder rather than him. She had gotten to the point where she wasn't, uh, she had urinary incontinence and he was just changing pads and diapers and uh, pull-ups. And uh, he really lost the relationship and lost his identity as a husband. And he was able to get that back. It was just a wonderful moment of reflection for him. Well, and I think that's the other messages be the family member. You don't have to be all. You can't be all. And I think your book really does reflect that and helps people to find ways that they can still interact with their loved one, be comfortable, and be the family member and not be overwhelmed because it's it really is overwhelming. It's raising your Alzheimer's parent, if that's who it might be, as if you're raising a child. And yet, they don't mature and get older, they kind of reverse and, and go backwards in a way. Are there any any last thoughts that you have about who could benefit from not only reading your book, but also just that whole care community? How can we How can we all participate in a care environment that is helpful for all of us? It does take a village. What's one little thing that someone could do that could help somebody who's dealing with this? Just as we talked about earlier, I think just to to do something, to, to choose to uh, to love that person who is the, the care partner uh, and to do it without necessarily being asked um, you know, uh, by that person, you know, you could do this for me or that for me. Don't wait for them to ask. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, uh, Gary Chapman, who's the, uh, the original author of the, the book, The Five Love Languages, says that you know, some of the, the, the most beautiful love that you can experience in a relationship, whether it's, you know, a husband and a wife or partners or, you know, between parents and children or just, you know, one friend loving another friend is when that love occurs by choice. 
know, when it's, it's something that I choose to love you because you're my friend or, you know, you're uh, a family member and I want to help you because you're burdened on this journey. And it's that, you know, choice-driven love that is such a beautiful picture of love that we try and convey in the book. That says it all. Now, your book just came out last month in October. Where can people find it? It's available on uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, through a number of uh, online sites. Um, There's also a Five Love Languages website that uh, Dr. Gary Chapman maintains. It's FiveLoveLanguages.com, and the book is uh, currently featured on the website, as are some of his other books uh, about the Five Love Languages and and marriage relationships and, and other relationships. So. Uh, I think any of those places uh, would be an easy way to to get access to the book. All right. Keeping love alive as memories fade. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw, for staying up a little late in your part of the world, but also for sharing this this real inspiring story that you have and how it how this came to fall into your lap, how this personal story really changed the trajectory of your career. I'm sorry that your that your wife has passed on in the last few months. But I think you are doing her such a service by helping other people to be able to reach out to their loved one in such a monumental way. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Dr. Ed Shaw calling in from the mainland, actually, to help share his story of keeping love alive as memories fade and share a little bit about this really well-written, well-done book that can help anybody whose loved one is dealing with dementia and all of their care partners to make sure that they're taking care of themselves and really that we find ways to take care of one another. Now, when we come back, we're going to be talking with geriatric specialist Dr. Jessica Barry from Queens Medical Center and also a special guest, caregiver Lucy Chen. She's an inspiring woman who has been taking care of her mother for over six years now. So we're going to talk some more. As always, our show is your show. And if you have a loved one or you know someone who's dealing with Alzheimer's dementia, you can join us, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hawaii Public Radio is currently accepting nominations for its new Volunteer Community Advisory Board. We're seeking 20 listeners willing to share their knowledge of their community to advise station management on programming and outreach. Advisory board members may serve terms of two years with at least four meetings per year. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org for the nomination form and more details. Intelligence Squared U.S., where the world's leading thinkers debate today's most critical issues. The next topic up for debate, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. Drug costs are going up faster than any other segment of the healthcare marketplace. What other industry do you want to be more profitable than the one that's attempting to get a cure for HIV? That's all coming up on Intelligence Squared U.S. This evening at 7, right after Humankind. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Hawaii Pacific University and Ulupono Initiative. 
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak from Straub Medical Center, and I'm here in the studio live with Dr. Jessica Barry. She is a geriatric specialist at our partner, Queens Medical Center, and we also have guest Lucy Chen. She's been taking care of her mother for the last six years, and we're going to be talking some more for the remainder of our show about what is it like to really be in this situation and what are some of the things that all of us can do to help those who might be suffering with this serious medical illness. Dr. Barry, Lucy, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Now, Lucy, as we were talking to Dr. Shaw, I think a lot of what he mentioned sort of kind of touched you quite a bit because you're in this. You know, a lot of people hear about those who might be taking care of their parents or loved ones. You are every day taking care of your mom. Tell me about how this whole circumstance came about. It's been going on for about six years now? Correct. Um, we Mom had uh, minor strokes a few years prior to the, me coming home. She understood that her memory was fading. She had asked me to return home. Uh, I was living on the mainland for about 15 years. Uh, so I moved back, and I was able to transfer with my job. Uh, so that was secure. The rest was unknown. Uh, I haven't been on the. I hadn't been on the island for fifteen years, and I didn't really know at what level of memory loss my mom had had. Uh, so I moved in with my mom, started taking care of her, uh, and just really realized the that she wasn't able to care for herself. Um, even at that point, six years ago, she would laugh and go out with friends but not remember where she'd been or she would forget her wallet or forget to pay for something. Um, her friends would call me and say, your mom's leaving her purse everywhere. Um, y- you might need to watch that. Uh, so six years ago, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come home. Um, can't be that hard. She took care of me. I can take care of her. Famous uh, last words there, yeah. Lucy. It's not the same as taking care of a child. This adult child, no offense to anyone else, but in, in a way she was an adult child, had her mind of her own and she could walk and she could open doors and she physically looked well. So anyone who came across her would think that she was well and not understand that she really needed um, more help than she appeared to. So her friends would call from everywhere and say, I just spoke to her last week and she was supposed to meet me. She didn't because she had forgotten or she would be having lunch with a friend, walk off and not remember how to get back to where she was going. Uh, so coming home six years ago, it was uh, a difficult time, but also fun. I'm like, let's do whatever we can to get mom well. So I started with, let's get mom physically checked out. Uh, she hadn't gone to the doctors in a long time. She was afraid of them. Um, so I decided to fix her kind of inside out. I fixed her teeth first or went to a dentist so that she could eat. I figured no matter sure, what really happens, important. Absolutely. even if... Her memory does fade. If she doesn't have the teeth to eat or uh, to chew her food, it would become difficult down the line. So I made sure that her seven cavities were taken care of. Um, oh, okay. Seven uh, cavities. Yeah, it's kind of a lot. Uh, you know, and then check her eyes to make sure, she, make sure she can see. And then finally we were able to find Dr. Jessica Berry and um, get her care that way and get her to a geriatric physician. So now initially, were, are you the only child? Yes, I am the only child. Okay, so it really fell on you. Yes, and so you moved home. Your job helped you transfer. Yeah. And are are you still working? Are you able to manage both? Um, I am still working, um, thankfully and gratefully. Uh, but it was very difficult when I moved home. The job, uh, trying to 
work 40 hours a day. Mom was retired, financially figuring out where am I going to stay? Am I going to live with my mom? It's a one-bedroom apartment. I ended up renting um, a place across the street, but also managing all of my mom's finances. Um, They were all over the place. So savings, that was out the door. We had to pay off all the debt, um, mind the savings, mind her care in general, um, and the cost that's related to the care. So that that kept rising. Um, And trying to maintain the 40-hour work week, um, I used a lot of technology to help me watch my mom from from work, in essence. And that's a really curious thing. You know, it's funny because as you came into the studio today, there I was struggling with my iPhone. I just updated the software and I went, why did I do that? (laughs) I'm already regretting. And you're like, if you have any questions, tell me. I'm really good at that. And I went, oh, thank God. So how did you leverage technology to help you watch your mom? Did you set up like cameras in the home and motion sensors? And is this a very difficult thing to do? Or did you just find some like low-cost, high-tech options? Um, I went to my nearest technology store and just tried to see what was available to me. I had an iPhone, so I I could see what apps were out there. Um, My cousin is in technology. He's like, there's a camera out there, and maybe you can watch it on your phone. So, yes, I found um, a camera to watch my mom, and at the time I could actually speak through the camera because she could speak back to me, and we communicated that way. Um, It's like, oh, there she is. Um, my daughter's calling me from somewhere and she would just talk into the air um, and I could watch it in real time. Um, there are motion detectors set up in the house. I also had control of, um, I guess, like home kit. So I could control control the lights, control the television. So when it was time to sleep or if the TV was left on, I could turn it off for her. Um, there are motion detectors so that when she walked to the bathroom, the light would always turn on um, so she wouldn't fall. I was also f- fearful of her falling. Uh I made sure she had an iPhone in a purse that she would always take out. So if she happened to get out the door, I knew she would always take that purse. And I hid an iPhone that I could use, find my iPhone to find her. You Um, really just figured this all out (laughs) technologically. I just found what was available and see if it could work. And applied it to you. Correct. And it worked. Yeah. For a little while it worked. (laughs) But long enough that it made a difference. Even things as simple as a child door lock. Um things that you can find at Walmart or Longs or whatever, just a child door lock so that she couldn't really get out the door to to wander. Because wandering is one of the big issues and then getting lost. And how many times do we hear about people on the news? Somebody has memory issues. They've wandered. We don't know where they are. And for some reason, it seems like whenever I watch the news, they're found in Waikiki. I don't quite (laughs) know what's going on. There is a lot going on in Waikiki, but how are all these people getting there? I just don't know. But, you know, it's because wandering is a huge issue. So you were able to leverage technology to really help. Is your mom able to live alone now or you live with her? And how did that, what were your signs that made you say, okay, we've got to switch this. We've got to get together now. Um, One of my therapists had told me I can be a daughter or I can be a caregiver, but I can't be both. Very Um, true. And at that point, it had hit home that something needed to give. Uh, and she had reached a medical level where she couldn't care for herself. She was incontinent, um, wandering, confused most of the time. So I decided to get her into a care home, a care facility. Uh, financially, it was a strain. I sold my home on the on the mainland in order to help pay for it. Um, and it realistically, I think I could have done it for maybe two years without it completely wiping me out. Um, luckily, we found um, a community care foster home after the care home, um, 
and that has helped us financially. And it's actually better care for her and her needs um, because she does need 24-7 care now versus maybe just food um, and, and you and can baby. be the daughter. And I can be the daughter. And you don't have to do all of the other care, which sometimes can lead to you not having enough time to just be her daughter because you're getting giving her showers or making her food or changing her soiled clothes or doing the laundry or all these other pressures that really take away from your ability to just be her daughter and love her for who she is. Yeah, when you have to, like you said, bathe them, find food for them. Um, I found um, a meal delivery service for, for seniors that was able to bring her a hot meal three times, two times a day. So I didn't have to worry about her breakfast and her lunch. Um, and at that, w- that way, I knew at least she was eating. Um, another thing is making sure she was hydrated. That was the most difficult part, aside from all the other caregiving, um, uh, taking her out to use the restroom. That was also difficult. Uh, but just keep in mind, they're human beings. The dignity portion, you just have to work with them and what they're able to do. Sure. And, you know, one of the things Dr. Shaw mentioned, and, and I know firsthand is, you know, so my mother had a stroke and she's still cognizant memory-wise enough. And when I go home, she's in adult diapers. And so we change her. And my brothers have had to step up to the plate and do the same thing. And, you know, whatever dignity my mom may have saying, I don't, I don't want to have my sons do this, it's out the window when they're the only person. That's just, you just got to do it. So it does kind of take away from being able to be their child and you kind of become more than just the parent, really, the caregiver. I mean, it's not even a care partner like Dr. Shaw talked about. It's a caregiver. That's that's what you're doing. Now, Dr. Jessica, you also entered into this scenario. You became Lucy's mom's doctor. Is this a common thing? I mean, it seems to me like I'm hearing about this, and maybe I'm just watching too much of the news, which is oh so positive. And, you know, I'm hearing about people who say, you know, grandma or grandpa or their mom or dad or auntie or uncle can't live by themselves. And we're hearing about issues of, you know, fraudulent activity, like their 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 money is being stolen from random people in other countries or they're mailing it away or because they don't have the ability to make decisions for themselves. And it seems like a lot of our vulnerable senior population, maybe their kids are living elsewhere, out of the country or on the mainland. Is there a huge group of people that we don't know about that are really suffering with these issues? And how do we find them? That's an excellent question. Actually, there is a huge population of people here in the state of Hawaii who have Alzheimer's or other dementia. About 26,000 seniors here that have Alzheimer's. 26,000. Do they all know it? I actually think that number is grossly underestimated, quite truthfully. I think that the vast majority of people who have some sort of memory impairment, especially early memory impairment, hasn't been diagnosed. So the number is probably much larger than 26,000, unfortunately. And those are the people who are at the highest risk because their family, even if they see them, don't realize how much impairment they have, how much problem they have looking after themselves and making safe and wise decisions. And those are the ones who are at risk for being taken advantage of financially or being abused um, or being neglected. And sometimes it's just because people don't realize that their mom or dad or some other family member needs more help. They just simply don't realize it. So how can we realize it? What are some of the warning signs that someone can say, okay, there's trouble. Should kids be monitoring their parents' finances? Is there a way to find out, you know, check the mail? I mean, 
I mean, I've seen some fairly egregious things happen, and I've been humbled in my office, mm-hmm. thinking that someone who presents themselves to me, who is clean, put together, mm-hmm. wearing nice clothes, mm-hmm. has got it all together. Absolutely. And then in comes one of their children, and mm-hmm. I find out the real story, Absolutely. and I'm blown away. So what are some of these signs or symptoms we should be watching out for? Well, I think that brings up a really good point. Just because somebody is clean, put together, and looks well-fed and speaks a good story doesn't mean that they have all of the memory that they used to have. And you have to get a backstory, and you have to watch out for the warning signs, which isn't just short-term memory loss. That's the most common one that we think about, the kind of asking the same questions over and over, repeating the same story over and over, but it's also having problems in day-to-day ability. So it's having problems paying bills. Maybe suddenly, you know, you just happen to glance at somebody's bills and you realize there's a past due notice. Mom, what's going on with this past due notice? Oh, I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry about it. And maybe you do need to start glancing at the bills and start glancing at the mail. Or maybe you're noticing that the pill bottles that are sitting out look really old. They haven't been refilled lately, or maybe they've been refilled months ago and they're still full. Maybe you're noticing scratches on the car, dings on the car, things that people can't explain. Oh, I think somebody else hit me in the parking lot. And when you start looking at the big picture, you're starting to think something's not right here. In some way, my loved one isn't functioning as well as they used to. And so, though, boy, if it's looking at your car, I'd be in trouble because, you know, (laughs) I've got quite a few door dings and that's a whole different story. But so really looking at their environment, is is there a role like ask their friends? uh, Are they doing well? Make sure that, you know, if they do have friends that you're finding out from the friends. I mean, it's almost like playing a detective, spying on your parents without having them know, Mm -hmm. but recognizing that you're only doing so to try and make sure that they're okay. And if they are, you can step back and say, okay. Mom wants to spend money on this ridiculous Mm -hmm. item. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Versus mom doesn't know where the money went. Mm -hmm. And why is she sending money to Nigeria? I actually had a patient who was talking to that nice man from Nigeria, sending her life savings. Mm -hmm. And who knew until it was gone? Absolutely. And I think as Lucy was saying, and I've actually had a handful of patients, it's very similar that the friends of the loved one were calling the, the, it was the daughter in this other case, were calling the daughter on the mainland and saying, something's not right. Something's different here. You need to come in and, and, and come home and check in on your mom. Um, so it's actually quite common that we have to get that extra history from family members, from friends, um, and we can't ignore that. You know, you were joking about your car and the dings. It's one thing if you've always been somebody who's dinged your car. That's yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've always been somebody who's driven perfectly and you've never gotten in accidents and now suddenly there's a change, that's what we're looking for. You know, we're looking for things that are different from a person's personality their whole life. If you have somebody who's always been overly trusting and would always have given money to Nigeria, that's one thing. If it's something that's happened that's new, um, that's a change in a person's personality, a change in a person's understanding of the situation, that's what we have to worry about. And it is a big issue, unfortunately, that people try to take advantage of seniors. And you see that also on the news. You know, there's a scam out here. There's a scam out there. You need to be careful. I've had some people talking about technology who've actually had their family members' home phone forwarded to their cell phone so that all the phone calls went through the family member and didn't get um, done at home. People also get mail forwarded. Nothing comes to their mail, their family member's mailbox. Everything comes to the caregiver or the care partner's mailbox. 
another important thing. There's ways, but that that can also some in some cases be isolating. It's kind of hard. You have to walk that fine line of balance Absolutely. between I'm not letting mom see magazines versus I'm not letting mom order stuff she doesn't need from catalogs or who knows what's going on. So Absolutely. And it's also the same about getting that extra bit of uh, background about what's going on because you don't want to be the nagging daughter or son or a niece or nephew who's asking all of these questions if there's no real medical memory problem going on, if it's just seeming like someone's nagging, you know, by the time we're 90, 50 percent of us have a memory problem. But that means 50 percent of us are actually doing pretty good. Um, I want to be in that group. Exactly. As we all do. Um, but we need to be aware that there are healthy seniors out there and not every senior needs looking over their shoulder. You have to look for the warning signs. You have to look for the things that really seem uncharacteristic for your loved one who's a senior. And so those warning signs, like you mentioned, you know, changes in their driving ability, maybe not keeping themselves as clean, Mm -hmm. maybe not showering, maybe Mm -hmm. not getting dressed and wearing clean clothes. There are Mm -hmm. some physical things you can see. But if you're on the mainland, even talking to your loved one, can they carry on a conversation? Mm -hmm. Do they follow what you're saying? Mm -hmm. So now, uh, Lucy, when you came home, you realized a lot of stuff had gone on for your mom that she'd been able to mask for years because she was able to somehow muddle along and not have troubles. How long did that last once you came home? About six months. So after six months, it was like, oh, this isn't working. Nothing was working, uh, especially financially. There were friends, supposed friends that were newer friends that I had to watch out for um, that would say, come and visit me and buy this from me and buy that from me. And uh, a lot of her good jewelry was gone. She had been purchasing nice trinkets um, from friends. Uh, But it was clear to me that there were some newer friends that maybe weren't as honest as they should have been and they were seeing a good thing um, with my mom's memory loss. Uh, Health-wise... taking advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Medication, that was a huge thing. She wasn't taking her medicine you would ask her to take it regularly. She wouldn't. I had found pill bottles that had been uh, not had not been refilled for quite a while, um, and I got her on an electronic pill dispensing medica- med- uh, tool to dispense her medication and would make a loud sound so that she would wonder what that loud sound is, see her medicine, and take it. So, um, But about six months to really realize that her finances were out of control. She had remembered that she was getting a certain m- amount from somewhere, that no longer existed, so she was spending out of control. Um, but in her mind, she had the money to back that up. So there's a lot of things that we realize that we go, okay, it's um, it's not the same. Things have changed. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a hard lesson to learn, no matter what the situation is. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and I have Dr. Jessica Barry. She is a geriatric specialist from Queens Medical Center and care partner and caregiver Lucy Chen who is here talking about the story of what happened when she moved back to the islands and realized her mom was in a situation where she needed more help than she might have known had she not come back to find out. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the things we can do to help people who have early signs. I think, you know, all of us worry. I don't know about you ladies, but I worry. Is the number of times I'm forgetting where I left my keys because I'm having early signs or symptoms. I think a lot of people worry about that because there may be some 
unyet, as yet undiscovered genetic issues that we have to consider as well. So we'll talk some more about that. If you or a loved one is dealing with these sorts of issues with your family member, give us a holler if you've learned some trick that really helped, because that will help everybody else who's listening. You can do so at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. NPR's From the Top with host Christopher O'Reilly returns to Hawaii Island for a live taping on November 30th. HPR presents the show at the Lunalilo Center on the Kamehameha School's Hawaii campus, featuring some of the school's students in an original Hawaiian language opera. See From the Top live in Keao before it airs nationally. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org for more. Supported in part by the Hawaii Youth Symphony. New Letters on the Air looks at novelists who encourage burgeoning authors, including Charles Baxter, who discusses the importance of detail. In moments of intimacy between people, it's absolutely crucial for the reader to know where they are and where they're looking. Go to the writing well with Charles Baxter and others next time on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Jessica Barry from Queens Medical Center. She's a geriatric specialist, and we also have Lucy Chen. She is a woman who moved back to the islands to take care of her mom. It's been going on six years already, and we're talking today about Alzheimer's dementia. How do you know someone you love may have it? And more importantly, given the recent statistic, which I think Dr. Barry might even be higher 50% of all people at the age of 90 have some memory issues. Okay, so so how do we know if we have it? What are some of the signs or symptoms that somebody, you know, what's normal for forgetfulness? Because I think a lot of times we talk about the end stage result, which is true Alzheimer's dementia. Mm -hmm. And respectfully, there's different types of dementia that present as memory loss. But what about like, you know, I walk into a room and I go, oh, I was supposed to do three things and I forgot one of them. What's normal for memory loss? And I realize that as we get older, there is a different definition of normal. So make me feel normal. So we all develop memory loss as we get older and it is completely normal. It's when people have functional day-to-day difficulties that's abnormal. So where did I leave my keys? Where did I leave my phone? Where did I park my car in this really big parking structure? Completely normal. Walking into a <laughs> walking into a room, going through a door and not remembering why you went there, completely normal. It's called better. called the door phenomenon. I have um, a lot of door phenomena. As we all do, unfortunately. Um, we don't multitask as well as we get older. So it is very common that we can't do the same three things that we used to do when we were in our 40s or 50s or 60s. Completely normal. We don't remember names as well. It takes us longer to come up with somebody's name. Completely normal. When we worry is when somebody starts having significant problems with memory that means that they're unable to do things like finances. They're unable to take care of their medicines. They're unable to drive safely. They're not cooking. They're not cleaning. It may start things simple as um, difficulty doing their day-to-day tasks that they've always been able to do. 
Um, but it is something that um, prohibits them from living a normal and healthy life. That's the difference with the memory loss. So it may be noticeable first with um, personality changes. So frustration, people may become very frustrated because they're not able to take care of themselves the way that they used to. Sometimes the earliest symptoms can be things like anxiety and depression. And there is some evidence now that shows that maybe very early Alzheimer's might actually look like depression and turns into Alzheimer's disease. But when you hear about some of the medications Mm -hmm. and, you know, we hear about Aricept and Exelon and Amenda, it's all designed to work at the earliest stages. So if you wait until functionally you're not doing well Mm memory-wise... Have we missed the opportunity for those medications to actually do any good? Probably not. Um, There's studies out there. there, There's a a stage before Alzheimer's called mild cognitive impairment. And that's when somebody has memory loss that's worse than we would expect, but they're still in a day-to-day ability to look after themselves. And there's lots of studies that show that if we give medicines like Aricept and Exelon, it does not prevent the progression from mild cognitive impairment to Alzheimer's disease. So even if you start the medicine early, it Mm -hmm. doesn't prevent it. It does not prevent it. Does it delay it? So when somebody has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, it does seem to prevent um, loss of some um, more complicated activities like bathing, dressing, or moving into a nursing home by about six months. So it can delay potentially needing extra care, correct? but you're not really reversing. We have yet to figure that out. We don't have anything to reverse. We don't have anything to stop. All right. We've got to work on that. Seriously. Let's not forget about that because, and that's not even just kidding Yeah. because we're talking about dementia, but truthfully, because that's, I think a lot of things we're learning in medicine is, is how to help deal with different diagnoses, but really we've got to work on mm-hmm. how to prevent them and early diagnosis mm-hmm. and God, if there's a reversible way to treat Alzheimer's, I'm on board. All right, we've got Francis on the line from Javi. Francis, welcome to the Body Show. Hi. What can we do for you Hello? today? Hello. Can you hear me? We can hear you can loud you? and clear. Okay, great. Um, so I took care of my mother here on the Big Island for the last two years of her life. I brought her over from the mainland, and some of the things I learned, um, this little thing, having a blackboard that you could in the prominent place in the room in her house that she could, I would write down what was going on that day and I'd put a phone number if I had to leave. So she would have, cause she wouldn't remember my phone number, but I, if she had it, she could call me. And I would um, also, I found that when I had to do intimate care for her, it was much easier on both of us as far as embarrassment or preserving her dignity that I would always work from behind her rather than face to face. Interesting. And it, okay. In a sense, it saved face. Mm-hmm. In a very interesting way. Yeah. Okay. And so that that was what I wanted to share. Is blackboards really help when they're still able to read? Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have to do things like cleaning or bathing or or diapering, approaching from behind was so much easier. She didn't have to see me see her. And that's actually a really good suggestion about the blackboard because for reasons we don't fully understand, our visual memory, so reading things, seems to stick around longer than hearing things. So sometimes people actually remember better when they read it, and especially it's nice if it's up where they can see it over and over and over again because then you're getting some repetition as well. But it really does work well to write instructions and write reminders down much better than verbal being, being told. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think also the other thing that Francis mentioned is, you know, great idea. Do the care from behind 
because then you're right. You can sort of save face, but also the individual doesn't feel like, you know, there's any embarrassment and um, there's still going to be potentially a little, but at least they feel a little more comfortable. That's another really mm-hmm. good point. So lots of great points, Francis. And, you know, great that you were able to take care of your mom for two years. And I think, you know, one of the important things, and Lucy, I'm sure you would agree, is that when your parent or loved one needs care, you want to do your best to be part of that solution and still be able to enjoy the time you have with them while they're able to function and enjoy those years. Even if it's just memories when you were a kid, just enjoy those experiences. You're absolutely right. I, The one thing that I love with using technology as well is taking video of our experiences together. Um, I was able to take time off as much as we can, we would go out to eat. Whatever she wanted to eat, sky's the limit. Whatever you want, we're going to get it. You want to travel, let's travel. Um, but s- making memories, new memories like that, bringing up old stories as well because she would repeat them, that's okay. I just listened. I, after a while, I stopped stopping her. I just let her be. Um, but also creating new memories, having fun, traveling, and doing the things that she enjoyed helped me to enjoy time with her. And I think that's the one thing that, I would always recommend is take away the anger, the frustration, and try to get to the point of having fun with your care partner. Um, and, and being in the time. moment. Yeah, You absolutely. know, you talked about it earlier that your mom was so delighted with, like, bubbles that came out of, of, a, of some kind of device that would, like, make bubbles, a bubble shooter or something. And, you know, like, little things that would delight her endlessly. Yeah, she loves, um, she loves children. Uh, she would be on one aisle of the shopping um, aisle and she would see a child on the other end and she would be gone in an instant like with her cane and all I'm like where'd you go and there's a child there so we found a baby doll um, would actually keep her from wandering just holding a baby doll I would put baby powder in its diaper so it smelled like a baby and she would hold and protect that child that doll um, and it kept her happy um, without fidgeting or wanting the desire or needing the desire to leave at any point in the day she would just hold on to that doll and what an interesting way that you allowed her to be a caregiver. Right. And in doing so, it kept her safe as well. Oh, that's just a beautiful story. All right. We've got Malachi on the line from Kahala. Malachi, welcome to The Body Show. Well, thank you very much. What a great topic. Um, <clears throat> I think Alzheimer's sometimes is uh, kept in the closet or there might be some shame around it. So it's good to uh, have it out in the open. Uh, a couple of things. One, uh, you know, my brother-in-law bought my sister long-term care insurance um, when she was, you know, functionally normal. And when it uh, he died and she became, uh, her Alzheimer's just really took off. And uh, now she's in a great facility and it's being paid for. So that's something to think about. I don't know what the premiums are, but I assume they're kind of high, but that's good planning for the future. Good for uh, your brother-in-law. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. The yeah, long-term care great. is, you know, anybody no, who doesn't mm-hmm. have it, look into it because yeah. that's something premiums are lower when you're younger, but yeah. also it may be a lifeline as time goes on. You're right. Absolutely. And when I call her, uh, she pretty much doesn't know who I am, but I have a couple of strategies. One is I call her early in the morning. She seems to be a, a little more together than and I don't identify myself because I had I did once and she got very agitated. You're oh, my brother. Oh, I don't like you. But if I just say my name, I'm Malachi. She go, 
oh, Malachi, how are you? You know, she doesn't really know who I am. But we have a good conversation, especially if I say, uh, I only have a few minutes. And that, I think, takes the pressure off her because she can still, you know, navigate a few minutes. And uh, we have a pleasant uh, phone call, so I try to call her often. Uh, one more thing. I don't know if you guys heard of Ann Bastings. Uh, she is at University of Wisconsin, um, a theater artist as well as educator. She just won the MacArthur Fellowship for working with Alzheimer's and uh, memory deficit uh, elders and helping them create stories. In other words, they cannot remember the real stories of their life, but they help them create, spin new stories. Like, okay, let's, let's, what kind of husband would you like to have? Oh, Errol Flynn. You know? <laughs> and they will create a story with these people, and they find it uh, very helpful to their quality of life. Well, and I think you touched on three really important topics, which, you know, again, ways that you found to communicate calling early because sometimes people have better days in the morning. And then also, you know, just letting them know just a few minutes. It's not going to take forever if you're in the middle of doing something. I've heard some other options or some other suggestions, Dr. Barry, that, you know, somebody who has a phone with pictures on it or these days, you know, FaceTime is a wonderful thing because hearing a voice and not being able to place the face sometimes is difficult. But if you have the option to do both, either through a video call or even through just putting a picture of someone by the phone, that that helps them to place the name as well. And, you know, I really like hearing that people are doing work with folks who have Alzheimer's to help them, you know, craft new stories, but also just to participate in activities. You know, Lucy, you mentioned your mom enjoys just simple things. And, you know, having her, if she likes art, if one of her joys in life was music or dancing or some sort of physical activity, encourage that because that... You know, and I've heard, Dr. Barry, tell me if I'm wrong, that sometimes musical ability can last, that there are certain talents and activities that we may have, artistic or, or, or otherwise, and that particular area of the brain is not as affected. That's absolutely correct. Music is stored in a different part of the brain, and that lasts much longer than most other memories. And actually, Lucy, I know you have an iPod with your mom's favorite music from when she was young that she still seems to re respond to and remember. And so I recommend people do that exact same thing. Get an iPod, get a CD, something of music from when they were kids. Um, and it really helps bring somebody alive. I played um, a big band music for a patient of mine the other day, and she sleeps all day long. I turned my phone on, I, you know, got on Amazon Music, actually, and got big band music. And she just woke up. She just woke up in the middle of the appointment. And I said, do you know this song? And she said, no, not at all. But she was wide awake and responsive and the most alert that I had seen her in months, actually. And so music is a wonderful thing for, for a lot of seniors and definitely seniors who have memory problems. So should we be fostering more of that activity? Absolutely. I often wonder in some of our current memory care homes, do we give people enough opportunity to have the outside influences? You know, Lucy, you mentioned carrying a baby doll. There was a book that came out um, a couple of years ago. Atul Gawande wrote this wonderful book, Being Mortal. And uh, I read it as soon as it came out because he talked about having people go to care facilities and in some cases even just being being required to take care of a parakeet. Having a bird in the room meant that they had some new investment in trying to help take care of a living thing. 
having pets in care homes, mm-hmm. having plants, having life, having growing things, mm-hmm. being outside, mm-hmm. really just remembering that you don't have to have an institutional feel, mm-hmm. even if they're in an inst- in, in institution. And that's one of the things, actually, I love about Hawaii is the care homes and foster homes, because a lot of them are families, and they may have pets, and they may have small children, and a lot of people really respond very well to that. And I hear all the time, you know, mom won't do any of her physical therapy exercises, but the caregiver has a four-year-old who will make her play ball, and she'll play ball with her for an hour, and she's the only one who can get her to exercise. And that's great for the it's four-year-old. Pri- exactly. It's priceless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, that's that or walk of the dog or do mm-hmm. something that, you know, sometimes just to feel needed. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the issue, mm-hmm. that they feel like they're a contributing member of society. They're needed to do something. Mm-hmm. I know some folks say, we let mom fold the clothes, even mm-hmm. if they don't look right mm-hmm. and she makes a mess. We do it anyway because mm-hmm. she needs to feel like there's an activity and a job for her. Absolutely. People always want to feel like they're being heard. People always want to feel like they're being useful at any stage. And it may be something as simple as folding towels. It doesn't matter how towels are folded. And people want to feel like they can contribute to decisions in their life. So it may not be a question of, do you want to invest in this IRA or this one? Maybe it's a question of, do you want Chinese food or do you want Italian food today? Giving them an option. Giving them an option. Giving them a choice. Exactly. And then fulfilling that with following through on that. All right, Lucy, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Your mom is currently still with us. Yes. She's in one of these foster facilities. Yes. And you get a chance to see her and be a daughter. Thank you. That's fantastic. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's really what we want to hear. You know, it's been how six years since you moved back. Yes. Would you ever leave? Would I ever leave? Hawaii. Yes. Okay. In a heartbeat. <laughs> so this coming home, although yeah. a lot of people feel like this is you know, the greatest place to live, this was a huge sacrifice for you. It, it was. And, I, and I it would still do it, is. And it is. And I would do it all over again. Um, if, if need be, I would do it again. And that's an important thing. Your mom is so lucky to have you. Thank you. Truthfully lucky. And Dr. Barry, for those people who wonder, are they having problems, memory issues, best thing to do... Talk to your provider, mm-hmm. talk to your family, get checked out. Absolutely. Make an appointment with your primary care provider. Ideally, bring somebody who knows you very well, who can either tell them, yes, there's memory problems or no, there's not. And then that person may need to be referred out to a specialist like a geriatrician or a neurologist. Well, because a lot of times the person who has the memory issue may not have the insight to know Correct. they have the memory issue. Correct. You know, we could be in denial. It's actually not denial as much as it's true lack of insight. People with memory disease don't know that they have memory disease, except for in very early stages, like we were talking about earlier. People who are truly forgetful don't even know they're forgetful. So please don't ask them, Did you, how can you not remember that? Precisely. Not fair. Okay. Well, a lot of great information. I want to thank both of you for sharing your insights and being on the show. A shout out to Dr. Shaw. He also had this hit him personally. And as a result, it took him into a whole different career path and wrote this book. And I I reviewed it over the weekend. And it's really has a lot of good information, keeping love alive as memories fade. Certainly, we need to hear more people tell their story. Great callers that we had this evening, really helping us highlight some of the challenges that happen for all of us and could happen to any of us. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Barry, for getting me a little more concerned, but I feel alleviated that I have door phenomena when I go in a room and I can't 
remember a darn thing. All right, so I want to thank both of you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer was Righteous Rob, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. See you next week here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.